Well, rags to riches is a popular theme in life and literature. We love those Cinderella types of stories where the one who was rejected is discovered and they're elevated to a place of honor. Now, whether it's a fictional story like that of Cinderella or a real life account like that of Abraham Lincoln, who began in a humble log cabin and was promoted to the White House, or a man like Joseph in Genesis, who started out in a pit and a prison cell and ended up in the palace, we love to see where the underdog comes out on top. And the story of Jephthah that we're gonna begin looking at today in chapters 10 through 12 of the book of Judges is like that. Except that Jephthah's story is not gonna end with the hero living happily ever after because next week, we're gonna see when we come back and look at the vow that he makes in verses 30 and 31 that the story ends on a tragic note. But before we get to the end of the story and the vow, I want us to look at the beginning where God takes a man who was rejected and cast out and he redeems his background and he raises him up to lead his people to victory. So as you're turning in your Bible today to Judges chapter 10, I wanna remind you of the context of the story that we saw last week. The background to what is happening right now in the book of Judges is that Israel had once again turned their back on the true God of heaven. They had gone to play uh, with the pagan gods of the land. There were seven pagan gods that they were pursuing at this point. And God once again had to send his people into a time of discipline. And we saw that there were 18 long years that they suffered under the Ammonites in the east and the Philistines, the Philistines in the west. And as they suffered for 18 years, the people's hearts finally were broken. They finally turned back to the true God of heaven. They responded in true repentance, and they said to God in Judges 10:15, "We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to thee, only please deliver us this day." Now what happens next both surprises and scares the people, because what we find in verses 10 through I'm sorry, in verses 17 through 18 is it says, "Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, there are times that God works in unexpected ways in all of our lives. And what we see happening here uh, fits that because the people have finally repented of their sins. They finally turned back to the true God of heaven. And what they expect is to be blessed. They expect that God is going to deliver them, step in, but instead they find themselves in a battle. They had asked to be delivered, but it looks like they're going to be destroyed because the enemy gathers together at Gilead. Now, Gilead is a town on the east side of the Jordan River. It's in the area where the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were located. And what happens is the Israelites in the area gather together at Mitzvah. It's a town that means watchtower. It was kind of a fortified high area. And as they gather, we see the Israelites still haven't fully figured out how to trust in God. Because they say, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? They forget that it's God. It's God who's going to come and fight for them. I wonder how many of us operate in the same way. You know, when the birds are singing and the sky is blue, it's easy for us to say, God, I trust in you. God, I, I know you're in control. I know you're going to take care of this. But when a trial, a tragedy, some disappointment hits 
our life. How many of us are like the people here where we turn to ourselves, we turn to our own resources instead of clinging to God, instead of trusting in him and his promises. So we turn to ourselves or the things of the world that we think are going to offer us security or safety. And as the people gather together here, it should have been a prayer meeting where they were turning to God and entreating him and falling on their face and saying, God, we need you. But instead it turns to a political caucus because they say, who is the leader that we can appoint? Who can we raise up to take care of us? Now, as they scan the crowd, remember, they've been under enemy occupation for 18 years. That means they haven't had a standing army. They haven't had leadership. They don't have people who know the ways of war. And so the pickings are really slim as they look around. And as we think about the desperate situation that the people in, or we think of the situations that we sometimes find ourselves in, I want to remind you that God isn't standing at the edge of heaven, looking down and going, oh no, I didn't see this coming. What are we going to do? I don't know what to do here. Friends, God is omniscient. God knows all things. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. God is not surprised by anything that happens in this world. There's nothing that takes God by surprise, and there is nothing that God can handle in history or in your life or mine. As God looks at the enemy gathering together at Gilead, he's not worried. He says, this is great. It's going to let me take them out all at once. And as the people are looking around and saying, who do we have to lead us? God says, I already have a man. I have a man that I've been at work in his life preparing him for this moment. And we meet this man in Judges 11, 1 through 3. It says, now Jephthah the Gileite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tov. And worthless fellows gathered themselves around Jephthah, and they went out with him. Now, as you read the resume of Jephthah here, it's not really what you expect, is it? I mean, it starts out in, in a way that we would expect a great leader to be. His, his father appears to be a man of standing. He's even uh, the one that the, the tribe, he shares the name of the tribe. Now, however, though, we see his, his mom is an unnamed prostitute. His mom's an unnamed prostitute, which tells us that Jephthah began as an unwanted accident. Jephthah began uh, being unplanned and conceived in a moment of sin. Now, after Jephthah was born, he continues to be unwanted because this illegitimate son is passed from his prostitute mother to his father. And his father at some point passes away and it leaves this uh, illegitimate son among the other children in the home. And they make it crystal clear that he doesn't belong and he's driven away. Jephthah and Zep were told in Tov, which is a lawless Wild West type of town. It's 80 miles to the northeast and it's right on the border of Ammon and Syria. 
and from him being called a valiant warrior, what that tells us is he was a young man in this uh, far off land right on the enemy border who was battling as these cross-border raids would happen. As the enemy was invading into Israel and raiding the land, uh, Jephthah was one of the few people standing against what was happening. And he becomes a Hebrew type of Robin Hood because we're told that worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah and they went out with him. Now, if you're using the New International Version, it's a little kinder in its description. It calls these men uh, adventurers. They're adventurers, right? But the Hebrew word here means empty or idle. It tells us you have a group of young men who uh, were unemployed, They were idle, they were outcasts themselves, and they were living on the streets and having too much time on their hand. We all know what that leads to. And so you have this ragtag group of people. There's this dark and hopeless situation where the people have no hope or direction. And into this, uh, God was at work. There was light shining in the darkness because behind the scenes, he's turning Jephthah around. And he's raising him up, not just to be a gang leader, but to be a true leader, a leader who will be used in the nation. You know, as you read the Bible, you find all kinds of accounts of this. Men and women who were thrown aside by society, those who said, this is somebody God can't use. And we see how God was at work redeeming their past and raising them up. King David was one of those. You remember that David was a shepherd boy, and at one point he was chased out uh, of the area by Saul, the king at the time, who was jealous of David. And David, like Jephthah, also was in in a desolate area. He gathers around him a ragtag group of men who were raised up to become a formidable fighting force. And it was there that God was training David to be the king and leader of the nation. You know, there are many times I talk to people who who view their life before coming to Christ as some desolate wasteland. They say, Roger, I had so many years of my life that that I wasted. And there were things that I did, mistakes that I made, and, and I don't know how God could ever use me or want to even have me around. But friends, with God, even the mistakes we've made or the bad experiences in our lives can be used and redeemed by God in ways uh, that we don't even understand. I've seen that in my own life. I've shared with you before my testimony, how I grew up in a home with a father who was a wife and child abuser. And I was kicked out of the house at the age of 16. I was fighting my father, trying to protect my mom and siblings. And I ended up out on the street at 16. And what the world would say was a devastating uh, chapter in my life as I found myself out and and rejected by my, my own father Uh, God was at work, and he was redeeming that time. Because as I tried to support myself, I was working two jobs, and one of those was a a work-study program through a magnet school I I went to in Dallas. It was a government law, and I worked for a law firm. And God had me connected to a single man who was an attorney in this law firm. His name was John Stasny. And John was a godly man, a single man, and he had a town home, and he said, Roger, I've got a spare bedroom. You're welcome. Uh, to stay there till you figure out life. And so I stayed with John. And again, by God's direction and province, my best friend in high school, uh, Steve Honer, his father, who was a, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, they lived just a few blocks away from John Stasny. 
And so I was in the Honer home and with John Stasny. And in those two homes, I saw something I had never seen before. I saw the gospel lived out. I, I came to understand what grace was. I came to understand what it meant to, to serve a God who loved me unconditionally, a God who died for me, that I couldn't work my way to heaven, but that salvation was a gift of grace through faith alone. And in that time, uh, while the world would say it was, it was a, a land of devastation, God was at work. Now, friends, it's not the path I would have chosen. <laughs> but I've seen how God has used that, how he's taken my past and has used it in many ways, including to be able to come alongside many of you, many hurting families where there's, there's hurt in the home as well. Many of you can look at your own lives, at the brokenness that you've experienced, and you may be looking at those pieces and saying, God, what are you doing? And I want to tell you that God can take those broken pieces and he can make a masterpiece out of your life. He can take your background, your story, and he can use them and redeem them in ways. Your past does not have to define your future. God can redeem you. God can raise you up. He can use the mistakes you've made or the hard things that have happened to you because of the bad choices of others. And he can use those in ways. You have no control over the character of your ancestors, but if you come to Christ with him, you can change the destiny of your descendants. And this is what we see happening here with this man named Jephthah. Verses 4 through 6 tell us, And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to, to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come! And be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Now, whenever I read the scriptures, I always try to place myself in the story. Friends, just don't read through the Bible like it's some dry, old, dead historical book. Think about the scene here. It's like one of the old westerns, right? Jephthah is that guy that grew up in the town that everybody was afraid of because he was skilled with a gun, so to speak. And so the good townsfolks drove him away, right? And he's out living on the edge of town somewhere. He's, he's in some back wilderness area. He's got a hideout in a cave. He's, he's gathered uh, these, these people around him. And they don't want Jephthah around until the outlaws blow into town. And now suddenly they need somebody, right? They need somebody to come in and be that, that, that hired gun, that, that sheriff for them. And so you can picture Jephthah here and his band of buddies. Or they're sitting in the shade of some big rock out by a cave. And along comes the, the delegation from the town. They're, they're nervous. They're, they're huddled up so closely. They're stepping on each other. As they come to Jephthah, uh, his friends move in and they form this circle around the good townspeople. The muscles are kind of standing around and you can hear the, the voice squeaking of the, the delegation as they make their offer to Jephthah. And as Jephthah hears what they're saying, he probably has a, a knife out. He's, he's maybe cleaning his fingernails with it. And in verse 7, he says, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? As I read this, I thought about what happened in our country back on September 11th. Years ago, when the terrorist attack happened here in our country, 
People in the news and the media were quick to get on the airwaves and say, where is God? Where is God? Why would God let this happen? And uh, Anne Graham Lotz, who was Billy Graham's daughter, was interviewed by Jane Clayson on the early show. And she thought she was going to go for the jugular and kind of uh, trash the name of God. And, and so she says to, to Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, how could God let something like this happen? And Lotz had a, a beautiful response. She said, I believe God is deeply saddened by this, just as we are. But for years, we've been telling God to get out of our schools, to get out of our government, to get out of our lives. And being the gentleman that he is, I believe he's calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give us his blessing and his protection if we demand he leave us alone? How many people in our world right now are asking similar things like this? We look at the mess of the world. We look at the mess our society is and, and people go, where is God? Why is God letting all these things happen? Why are these tragedies taking place? And so many people treat God like he's some genie in a lamp, right? We just kind of rub it and he pops out and he says, uh, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? And God could easily answer and say, as Jephthah does here, so now you need me, huh? And if, if I help you, are you really ready to let me be your leader? As you think about that, that question is one we need to answer, not only when it comes to our country, but it needs to be answered at the individual level for each of us, men and women. You know, many of us will say to, to God, Jesus, I accept you as my savior. I, I need you to save me uh, for eternity. I accept you to be that, that savior for, you know, my get out of jail free card when I die. But how many of us are ready to say to God, God, we're ready for you to be our leader. God, you get the throne room of my life. You get to sit on the throne of my heart personally. You get to lead me. You get to control my destiny and direction. God, I yield myself to you. Have you really said something like that to Jesus? Is God the one who has the throne of your life? Where he's your sovereign as well as your savior? As you consider that question, can you really answer it yes, with no reservation? Are we like the people we see in our passage who say to Jephthah, okay, okay, can we just get past all that and just get some help? Jephthah, we need your help right now. Verses 8 through 9 tell us the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now come and returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? See, Jephthah knows these guys are hard to trust. He says, well, I hear what you're saying, uh, but am I really going to be the head over you? Now, as he says that, I want you to notice that Jephthah points out that it is the Lord. It's the Lord who's going to give the victory, not me. It's God of heaven. Lord is in all capital letters. That's the name Yahweh. That's God's covenant name that, that he uses. 
He says the personal covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, is the one who's going to deliver you. And I want you to remember who Jephthah is. He is a pagan prostitute for a mother. He has a, a father who neglected him. him. He, he's growing up in a time where the word of God is rejected. The past 18 years, the nation of Israel has turned their back on God. And yet this man is one who says, I know the true God of heaven. And it's the true God of heaven who will help us. As Jephthah was rejected by many, he found God had not rejected him, but loved him. He said, I know a God who will keep his word. I know the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. As he was out in the wilderness, far from everything, God was at work in his life. When he was desperate, he was dependent upon the Lord. And Jephthah says, I know a God who is faithful. And I know a God who will rescue us. It is the God of heaven. He is a covenant-keeping God, not just of the nation, but on a personal level. Jephthah knew that. Do you know that? Do you know that God loves you, that God has not rejected you? Read Romans 5, 8. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says, when we were unlovable, when we were far from God, when we were in rebellion as sinners, that's when Jesus Christ came and he gave his life on the cross, dying for you and me to save us from our sins. God says, I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you come to know my son, Jesus, you are mine for all eternity. Jephthah had a lot of rough edges. He was still a work in progress. Next week, we're going to see what that means as he makes a rash vow. He doesn't understand what God really wanted. And, And right now, here is a man who had learned enough about who God was to say, I trust him. I trust in Yahweh. It is the God of heaven who will fight for us and free us. He was a rough character, but he was also a true man of faith, which is why you can read Hebrews 11.32. And Hebrews chapter 11 is what is called the Hall of Faith. And Jephthah's name is recorded there among the other heroes of the past. Jephthah's time in the wilderness as an outcast has brought him into a close walk with the Lord. And some of you right now are going through a wilderness experience. And men and women, boys and girls, God can redeem that. God can take that desolate, desperate time in your life and he can use it to bring you closer to him. You may find yourself right now like Jephthah as an outcast. You may be in a, a marriage or a home where, where the relationships are strained and they're hard. You may be in a financial crisis. You may be in a health crisis right now. And God says, I can meet you in the midst of that storm. And I can take you through that storm. In those times where we find ourselves in the wilderness, where we, where we fi- feel like we're all alone, we can look back at a, an old poem that many of you have read called Footprints. Do you remember Footprints? It was uh, this poem basically had the story of a man looking back over his life and he saw two sets of footprints in the the sand. And he noticed that at the, the most desperate, hardest times in his life, there was only one set of footprints and this really bothered the guy. Because he said, God, you were walking with me through the, my life. But then when things got tough, you abandoned me and you left me. There was only one set of footprints at that time. And, and God says to him, it was at that time that I carried you. 
The guy thought God abandoned him in the hard times, that it was then that God was carrying him. And some of you today may feel that way. Some of you sitting at home or at Stone Oak worshiping with us online or are, are in a place right now where you feel like God has left me and he hasn't because he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In those difficult times, God is right there with us. If you feel all alone right now, friends, cry out to God. He is there to meet you. He met you and me at the point of our greatest need as he went to the cross and he gave his life. He left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to walk among us, to go through all the limitations of life, to suffer the indignities of this world as the creator became a part of creation and ultimately gave his life to save you and me. That is the God we serve. That is the God who says, I love you and I want you to come to me and be my son or daughter. If you've never come to Jesus, I invite you to do so. To meet the Lord. To come as you are with the mess that you are. And God will take you where you are right now. And he loves us too much to leave us where we are. As we come to Christ, he will begin to work in our life. And he wants to see us walk with him and have our lives restored and redeemed. Jephthah was one of these guys. His life was a mess. He met God in the wilderness, and now God says, I am going to meet you, and I'm going to take you through this. Jephthah points the nation back to Yahweh, and he says, God is the one who will carry us through this. We see another sign of his faith as, as Jephthah wants there to be a public ceremony of commitment in verses 10 through 11. It says, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mitzvah. He goes from being an outcast to the leader of the people. Now, this isn't a promotion that Jephthah politicked for. It's not one that he worked for, but in God's time, the door was opened. And it's a good reminder to us as well that God has us in various places right now. And he's at work in your life and mine doing things that we don't always understand. And what God says is we need to be faithful where we find ourselves. It's our responsibility uh, to be faithful to God in the places where he has us right now, where we're learning lessons. And in the right time, he will take care of your future. You know, the world says before you can be used, you have to have the right background. You have to have the right pedigree. You have to have the right social standing or educational training. Now, while we certainly are to be equipped and prepared, we need to remember uh, that God is not limited to using only those with the proper pedigree or credentials. God is not impressed with the, the things of the world. What he's looking for are those who have the right heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us, For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what God said when he picked David to be king. And the prophet said, God, look at, look at all these other brothers who were bigger and stronger and, and have more of a resume than David does. And God said, I see David's heart. And David is the one that I choose to be king. As you search the scriptures, as you look back, especially through our, our study just the last several weeks in Judges, you see there is not a stereotype, stereotype that God uses. God has raised up men and women. God has raised up those who are rich and poor. 
God has raised up people from good families and bad. There have been those who were rulers and renegades. God is not limited uh, to only using the well-known. He uses the obscure. And so no matter where you find yourself this morning, God knows who you are. He knows where you are. And he says, be faithful where I have you. And his promotions are sudden and surprising. According to the world standards, Jephthah is a man that few would have chosen, but God raises him up to lead the nation. And as Jephthah takes the mantle here, uh, the first thing he does is seek the Lord as he holds this solemn convocation. Verse 11 says, he spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. And having committed himself in their cause to the Lord, verse 12 says, Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is this between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? Now, remember, Jephthah's background is a brawler. The reason he was chosen to be the leader was because of his skill as a fighter. And if you were a scrapper and that was your skill and you were just the newly appointed leader, uh, wouldn't you be thinking, well, now here's my time to shine. I'm going to show people what a skilled warrior I am. But surprisingly, the very first thing that Jephthah does is he seeks a way not to go to war. It's not because he's scared. It's because he recognizes this is going to be costly. There will be people who die. There will be things that will happen if we go to war. And so what he wisely tries to do is settle this dispute diplomatically. Verse 13 says, And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon, as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. The king of Ammon says, Okay, you want peace? Great, you can have it. Give up the land and get out. Does that sound like anything going on in our day with Israel? Israel's told you want peace? Sure, you can have it. Get out of the land. And Jephthah responds by telling the king of Ammon in verses 14 through 22 to go back and do a title search. He says, you know, king, your history is a little off. And in verses 23, uh, he goes in and he begins to give him a history lesson. He says it was Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Notice it's the Amorites, not the Ammonites, who were in the land. This is the king of Ammon who's saying, hey, the land is ours. Jephthah says, uh, let me tell you what happened when Israel left Egypt. You see, we tried to leave uh, them alone, that is, uh, the Amorites. He says, but as God led Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus, we asked permission to pass through to the promised land, but the kings of the area refused. And he said, we even tried uh, to avoid war by going the long way around. You wouldn't let us cut through the land, so we went around. And when we tried to go around, uh, the nations ambushed us. And they forced us to fight. And he says, at which time God defeated these foreign kings and he gave us the land. In Numbers 21, uh, you can find further confirmation. It wasn't the Ammonites who were in the land. It was the Moabites who were there before the Amorites even had the land which is why Jephthah brings up the king of Moab in Judges 10.25. Jephthah says, listen, if anyone was trying to claim past ownership, it would have been Balak, the king of Moab, but he didn't claim the land. Judges 11.23-24 tell us, since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? 
Do you not possess what Kamash, your God, gives to you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our God, has driven out before us, we will possess it. You see, what Jephthah's doing here is he's giving both a historical and a religious argument because the belief in that day was it was the gods who controlled and fought and they were the ones who gave and took land. And so he says, if a nation won in war, the land was said to belong to that God and its people. And Jephthah says, our God has defeated the false gods of the Amorites and of the Moabites in the past. He says, listen, if you want to do this again, if you want the gods to go to war, uh, Yahweh's going to whip up on your fake God, Kamash. So he says, we can do it this way if you want. Now, Kamash is the pagan god of the Moabites, but since the Moabites and the Ammonites often allied themselves in war against Israel, and since the land used to be under the, the supposed control of Kamash, Jephthah uses that name, uh, rather than using the names of Milcam or Molak, which were two other pagan gods of the day. So what Jephthah does in verse 26 is he closes out this whole argument and he basically says, you have no legitimate claim to the land. He says, he even goes back historically and says, we have been in the land for 300 years. And nobody's come up until this point to say, we don't belong in the land. So why are you coming now and claiming you have a claim to the land? And the answer, of course, is they don't, which is why he concludes by saying in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah had sent him. You see, there's no legitimate claim to the land. And the king knows this. But in verse 28, he basically says, well, if, if I can't win the argument on facts, uh, might makes right. And we're going to come in, we're going to defeat you. Because remember, Israel has been without an army for 18 years. They don't have weaponry. They don't have a standing army. They're not skilled in the ways of war. And so these enemy nations think, well, this is going to be a walk in the park. We're just going to walk over Israel. We're going to take the land. But the thing that has changed is that Israel has a leader now who is dependent on the true God of heaven. And Jephthah has said, it is God. It is God who will fight for us. We're not facing you as the enemy alone. Our God is going before us. And verse 29 says, Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. We've talked about before how when God calls a man or a woman to serve him, he always provides the power and the provision that is needed. And here we see that happening. As the Spirit of God comes upon uh, this leader, and verses 32 through 33 tell us, So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them with a very great slaughter from Aurora to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities. And as far as abel Kiriam and, and the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. And here again we see the victory belongs to the Lord. God not only defeats the enemy, they don't get the land they were trying to get, they even lose some of the land they, they had as 20 of their cities fall. Now there's more to the story as we're going to see next week, 
But what I want us to walk away with today is what we've seen is how God can take the broken pieces of our life and he can redeem those things. He can move us from the scrap heap of life to those who are able to serve him if we depend upon him. Again, the scriptures are full of stories of men and women like Jephthah. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. As he looked at his life, he said this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Friends, have you found Christ Jesus? Have you turned your life over to the Lord? Because when we do, no matter what our background is, no matter what the broken pieces of our life are, God can redeem those things. He can take them and he can shape us in ways where we can serve him. But it starts with giving our life to Christ, coming to him and saying, I need you to be my savior. And as we accept Jesus to be the Lord of our life, then we allow him to be the sovereign, the one who leads our life. If you've never done that, I invite you to do so now as we go to the Lord in prayer. Will you join me, please, as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you were willing to leave your throne in heaven, to come to earth, to ultimately go to the cross to give your life as a sacrifice, as a payment for our sins. So Lord God, I pray if there's anyone here or or worshiping online who does not yet know your son Jesus, that today would be the day where they say to you, God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, God, I recognize that as a sinner, I owe a penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you died for me, that you gave your life in my place, that you shed your blood to wash away my sins. And today, Jesus, I accept that gift of life. I accept you as my personal savior. I thank you that you died for me. I thank you that you rose from the dead, showing you conquered sin and death. And today I receive you as my savior in that gift of eternal life. And God is one who belongs to you. Would you use me? Would you take my life and would you use it in ways for your glory to serve you? I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to uh, meet with you after the service. We're going to have a closing song of worship and then you can come to the front where there will be prayer leaders. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to to hear uh, about that so we can help you to begin to grow in your new walk with Christ. So will you stand and sing this closing song of worship?